This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Good morning, Icon family. It's great to be with you again. About 30 years ago, I was hit by a bus. I know it's a crazy way to start a sermon, isn't it? But I was, and usually when I start to share that story, uh, folks start to, their mind goes everywhere because there's this abrupt and invasive thought of me getting hit by a bus. And it rouses all of these feelings of, of panic and concern and curiosity until they, they stop and they can settle in the reality that I'm still here. And it seems like I have all my faculties and they're like, okay, now I can settle into that truth. And then they start laughing, right? It almost always happens that way. Uh, so now that you know that, hopefully that settled you really well. I can tell you why I got hit by a bus. Cause I think that's even more important than just the fact of me getting hitting by a bus. Uh, I, I had a field trip uh, years ago, uh, and it was such a, it was probably seventh grade and uh, sixth grade, and I was having, I was so excited, and my mom would often, anytime I had a field trip, she would go and get my favorite, favorite, favorite snack to have to pack in my lunch, and so that snack was a snack called Lunchables. I loved Lunchables. I still do, but Lunchables were just incredible. It was the best thing ever. I was convinced that Lunchables were forged in the kitchen of like culinary Jesus. Like that's how great they were to me. Like little things of ham and cheese and crackers and snacks. It was just incredible. So I was super happy. My mom, she sent me off and she said, hey, it's, it was early in the morning. She sent me and my brother, my younger brother, uh, to, to walk about a block and a half down the road. We lived on a very, very, very very busy street, and but we had walked it many times to the grocery store, so it wasn't a big deal. So I go to this grocery store, it's called Farmer Jack's, I'll never forget it, and we walk down to Farmer Jack's in, in, in Detroit, and we uh, go there, we get the Lunchables, and we're coming back. On the way back, uh, there was a woman who had left, uh, she had walked out of her front door, saw us walking, and began to warn us that there was a very dangerous, violent dog that was about a block down the way and that we needed to avoid it because it had already been biting some other children. For various reasons, uh, I looked at her and I didn't believe her. I thought that there were other things going on with her and I just made these assumptions. And so I did not believe her. So we continued to walk down the street and lo and behold, this dog growling and foaming at the mouth makes his way uh, toward us. And as he's racing toward us, uh, my brother and I both realize we've got we've to run, we've got to get away. My brother begins to run out into the street, almost to try to cross uh, the street there. Uh, but this was an extremely busy street. There was a car that was coming. As I kind of try to pull him back from the car, I lunge forward, and the bus that was trailing the car, the mirror comes across and hits me across the head, and I get knocked on the ground. Now. I ended up being fine, as far as I know. Uh, I, I think that uh, the doctors were pretty amazed because all I seemed to have were some scratches and a headache. Uh, and so that, was, that, part was, that part was great. It was, it was, uh, I was really excited that I, that I made it. My family was really excited. Uh, they were really incredible. You know, they, they were just shocked that that was the worst of it. Uh, I guess it pays to have a very large, dense head. I don't know. But there was a deeper lesson that I learned in that, right? I mean, there were some things I, I was sad about. I missed my field trip. Uh, I missed out on the Lunchables. Uh, I could have been far. I could have been hurt far worse than I was. I had worried my single mother of four. She was incredibly afraid. She didn't know what was going to happen, how to care for me. But the most significant lesson that I learned out of all the things that happened that day was this: unbelief often comes at a high cost. Unbelief can often come at a high cost. All I needed to do was just believe the woman's warning. All I needed to do was to look for all the reasons, uh, to not look at all the reasons not to believe her. All I needed to do was look for reasons to believe. It, it wouldn't have been much of an inconvenience for me to walk back to the crosswalk and go across the street. You see, in every area of life, unbelief comes at a cost, oftentimes very costly. You don't believe in flossing? Gum disease is going to come sooner than later. You don't believe in properly maintaining your car? You're going to be catching Uber a lot more. 
uh, you don't believe in investing in your relationships, you're going to be lonely sooner rather than later. But there's also a cost to spiritual unbelief. There's a cost to, to, to having a degree of uh, a lack of belief in areas of spirituality, a lack of belief in who God is. There's a cost to not even believing in God. You might think that this is just something that is just neutral, something that is just easy and flippant and just kind of like, hey, I, I either believe or I don't. No big deal. Doesn't really affect my life either way. Well, Hebrews 11 reminds us that uh, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You see, unbelief actually has an incredible cost on us, on our lives, on our present, and on our future. And our text today illustrates this on an incredibly large scale, dare I say, on an eternal scale. Unbelief in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done carries a high cost. So let's read John uh, 12 verses 37 through 50 together. And uh, we're going we're gonna to look at a few areas in which, you know, last week, Jen talked a, a great deal about the cost of following Jesus. And I think the second part of this chapter shows us the cost of not believing in Jesus, the cost of not following Jesus. So let's read this together and then we'll dig in more deeply. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 37. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I've come as light into this world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you consider what this passage is really showing us, and even the passage that Jen preached on last week, when you consider just how big of a deal it is to consider not only what we believe, but the one in whom we claim to believe, it, it's, it's, it should create a degree of urgency. Okay? This should not be something that we just kind of treat, again, flippantly, haphazardly. This is something that we should look at as, as such a high priority that we need to dig and go, do I really believe the things that I believe? And what does belief look like? And then that also means we need to figure out if there's unbelief, why? What is the cause for our unbelief? Well, when you look at verses 37 through 41, there is something that could appear to be very controversial because John attributes something here uh, to, to, to explain why these Jewish folks, these Jewish leaders were not believing in Jesus. If you notice, he, he, uh, the, the first thing he points out 
is that these folks, remember, and, and, and the way that he kind of goes back, he goes back to Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6, and he quotes something that Isaiah prophesied centuries before, millennia before. He prophesied on something, and let me read it again. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, okay? So Jesus has already shown so much of who he is. He has demonstrated that there's something very different about him compared to anybody else that had come before him, and clearly, eventually, we'll see even after him. He's done incredible miracles. He's raised people from the dead. He's turned water into wine. And every time people question him about these acts, he doesn't even point attention to himself. He says, I'm doing the work of my father. And what is the work of my father? To come and save the lost, to come and rescue people from their sins, to come and be their Messiah, their Lord, indeed their very God. He's made these claims constantly, clearly, repeatedly, and people have looked away. Now, we've talked about this at our church many times. It's so easy for us to say, I just wish that I could see some miracles today. Maybe then I would believe. I, I'd be willing to follow Jesus if I just saw some things that would just be so different, so supernatural, that I'd have no problem believing. All one has to do is read their Bible to know that that isn't true. Now, how is it possible? How is it possible that you can see miracles and not believe? Well, John gives us this answer here. He says, all that stuff that you're seeing, those folks that are not believing, those folks that are refusing to believe the words of Jesus, but refusing to be moved to the point of real conversion after seeing the things Jesus did, here's why they didn't believe. The, all this is doing is fulfilling what this prophet way back when said. What did he say? Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he quotes from Isaiah 53 first. You see the prophet Isaiah pointing out all the ways that the Jews of his time were not believing in the very living God, not believing in Yahweh, not believing in what he's done, not following him well. And Isaiah is actually uh, communicating this like, out of all these people, who's believing our message? Who's listening to us? Who's believing in, in the living God? And then we see the response in Isaiah, uh, coming from Isaiah 6, and he quotes, and he says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts. They wouldn't turn, because then I would heal them. Now, this might, on the surface of it, seem really unfair, right? Because, man, what, what John is basically saying is, hey, you know those prophecies that Isaiah uh, pointed out back then? That explains why these folks won't or can't believe. So are they saying then that there are people here who just, they, it's just a very random thing and God just says, hey, I've now decided to make you incapable of responding to me. That obviously wouldn't seem fair in our definition, by our definition of the word. I don't think that's a, that is at all what's being communicated here, right? In many ways, we're reminded <clears throat> that there's always this tension between the very power, the very sovereignty of God, and, and the, the, the natural responsibility and free will of men and women. Throughout scripture, there's always a tension there, right? There's this tension that says, uh, we can't possibly love him until he loves us first. So that means our ability to love, our, our ability for our heart to actually love is, is, is contingent upon the first action of God. So on some level, wow, even my faith, even my heart, even my ability to change, that's not even rooted in me first, that's rooted in God. Okay, that's beautiful, but that also seems really unfair because are you saying then that there are people who if they choose or if they, if they aren't able to, it's not their fault? No, because we see other passages where we are indeed called to be responsible for our own choice to follow him. There are scriptures that says, choose ye this day who you will serve. There are scriptures that point out the things that believe and be baptized, right? These calls that say that we do have some degree of responsibility. There's a tension. They exist together, right? Now, we don't know exactly what it is, but what we realize is God is completely able to govern every single free will and free utterance of men and women. He can take everything that we do. He does take everything we choose to do and somehow uses that in order to be conformed to his sovereign and predictive will. 
We see that throughout scripture. We see both his sovereignty and our free will. How they kiss, very hard to be able to, to, to know. I don't know, I would never act like I know. But what I do know is that both things are true. We have our responsibility, God has his sovereignty. Here's where we should be concerned. While we can't know who, what God's doing with people's hearts, we don't know what happens first, chicken, egg stuff. We may not know that. But what we do know is that in this case, the scripture says that not only did these things happen, nevertheless, in the midst of people struggling with their unbelief, verse 41 or verse 42, nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. So they would not be banned from the synagogue for they loved human praise more than praise from God. When you think about this, this, this should actually make us realize something. Number one, we're going to talk about what real belief looks like. We're going to talk about belief going beyond the seat of your emotions and the seat of your intellect. What does belief look like when it's demonstrated? Because according to the scriptures here, belief goes past that. It may begin internally, but belief is fully realized externally. It makes no, it does not make a difference in the world to say I believe something, to feel like I believe something, and not demonstrate that I believe that thing. And so we have to ask the question again, how is it possible for someone to claim to think it, to feel it, but not do it? And I think this is where we start thinking about what, our big, what the first real cost of unbelief is. The first cost of unbelief is that we could easily be turned over and enslaved by our unbelief. You don't believe me? Think about Romans 128. Romans 128, uh, Paul is talking to this church in Rome. He's talking to people, uh, he's talking to the church in Rome about people who claim, uh, who actually don't even acknowledge God, will not believe in God, have actively decided they do not believe and they will not demonstrate any real loyalty uh, or, or ability to follow God. And he writes, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. How is it possible for someone to get to a place where no matter what is said to them, what is done to them, they still do not believe? Y'all, we don't know when, if, if and when that point comes for any of us, but ultimately what the scriptures show us is one of the, high, the first cost of disbelief one thing that, that, that really hits us hard is that we can get to a place where our heart is so hardened that we've been given over to it. You know, a lot of times when we find ourselves um, not believing and we just say, I just, I just don't believe, that's, that's because God has just given us the, the, the desire of our heart at that moment. My desire is not to follow him and eventually, yes, God continues to pull, he continues to prod, he continues to reveal himself. And then sometimes there comes a point where it's like, this is what you want or what you don't want, I will fully give yourself over. If anything, this is what your free will will get you. You will now get what it is that you freely want most, and it isn't me. That should, that should make us afraid. That should make us concerned. That should make us seek holiness. I don't want ever to get to a place where I'm so given over to my own disobedience, to my own desire, to my own self-worship, that I become incapable of following God. Oh, this is where they were, these folks, this, this unbelief. And when you think about what that means, think about again, Romans 128, you are given over to a corrupt mind. That's the reason why other places the scripture says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Because the first battle of belief and unbelief is in the mind. That's the battle of unbelief and belief. It's in the mind. It, it's, it's my thinking in accordance with what is true. Because if, if what is true about God is really true, then my thinking changes my feeling and my feeling changes my acting. And so here we see this idea that, that ultimately our unbelief is never just neutral because when it's fully formed and it's fully given over to, it becomes enslavement. This is why I, I make people, I, I so often want to question when people think that they have, have free will, how free are you really? Because if you're given over, to the very thing that you just want most, you're not nearly as free as you think you are. You're not even free to follow God anymore. That's not freedom, that's slavery. One of the, the, the uh, early church uh, theologians, John Calvin, put it this way. 
earthly honor, when, when he's talking a lot about uh, what it means when, when we want to hold on to the things that we believe so much, really because of what people will think or say, he says, earthly honor may be called golden shackles binding a man so that he cannot freely do his duty. This is, uh, when, you, when you think through this, think heavily about that first cost of unbelief, the fact that we can almost be enslaved by our unbelief. And when you look at uh, verse, th- that passage in verse 42, it really shows us that true belief in Jesus chooses the right cost. There's a cost either way. Jen made it really clear what the cost is of following Jesus, what it means to lose our life, what it means to hate our life. And she explained so well what it means to hate our life. It doesn't mean that we just uh, hate life in general. It doesn't mean that we have uh, horrible feelings about life. It just means that what we value most in our life is not ourselves. What we exalt and what we index most highly in our life is not ourselves. It is God's glory in our life. So, so we realize that that will be a cost. There are things I might have to give up in order to be able to love God more than I even love my life. Do we think about the cost then of not following? See, there's a cost either way. But what true belief does is it chooses the right cost. So there's one cost that says this is going to cost me relationships. This is going to cost me some things in my community versus this is going to cost me the very praise of God. Look at what Jesus said. Or look at the very end of of verse 43. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. So there are two costs here. Praise from God may sometimes result in a lack of human praise, oftentimes result in a lack of human praise. What does it mean, right, to truly believe? If you're truly following God, then that means that there are some stances that you're going to have to, like, camp out on. There are some positions you're going to have to hold to that depending on time, place, and culture will not be popular. May even feel threatening to people who hold to a different view. And so what do you do then? What what does it mean today for us to be a people that is so afraid? How does it word it? It He says, uh, uh, because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Jesus so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. My question to you all, what does our synagogue look like today? What does our our collective uh, communities from whom we seek praise, from whom we seek uh, community, from whom we seek uh, uh, this this degree of being uh, uplifted and encouraged and validated, what does it mean to give up validation to give up the praise of those that we trust and those that we communicate with and those that we look for, uh, look for real relationship with. What does it mean to be willing to, to, to give that up in order to stand firm in the very heart of God? Well, we're living in that time right now. We would be remiss if we just could preach Jesus and not preach the way Jesus shows up in our very time and place right now. We are living in a time where the entire world is beginning to speak out in almost one voice about this idea of, 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 of the effects of disproportionate justice on people of color, namely black people. This idea that God cares so much about every image bearer that when one group of image bearers is suffering injustice at a rate disproportionate to other image bearers, people who follow Jesus speak out. And what is happening to folks? Several folks, especially white folks who are speaking out. What are they dealing with? Being banned from their own synagogues, being kicked out from their own families dealing with the issues of having to do the hard work with other folks from similar backgrounds, family members, friends, and they're dealing with this. Here's the question. There are those who might realize that this is something that this is wrong and might realize that this has had a cataclysmic effect on black folks in America and around the world. They know it. They've read some of the books. They've listened to some of the podcasts, but they're so afraid to speak out about it because of what they may lose. I mean this as lovingly as possible. I mean this in the most humble sense. If you're worried about speaking God's heart because of what you may lose, according to this passage, you may not be a believer. Now that hits hard. 
Because I, in every area of life, we have to apply this. It's not just in matters of racial injustice. If there are ways, myself as a man, if I see that there are image bearers, uh, the scripture says uh, male and, uh, men, man and woman, male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. So if I see female, uh, women, image bearers being disenfranchised in any way, and I'm a man, and I don't speak out about it, how can the truth of God reside in my heart? Because, and here's the thing. If I know that's the case, you know what I know? I realize that to speak out about it may bring the ire of other men, and I have to deal with what that's gonna mean. Some men know this. Some men know what those conversations look like behind closed doors, what those conversations look like in the locker rooms. When someone makes a statement, I remember this um, a few years ago, there was a, a, uh, an athlete who uh, was doing a press conference, and in the press conference, there was a woman who was a reporter, and she made a, a, a statement about uh, a certain route that a wide receiver had run. And this, uh, this particular quarterback giggled, laughed, and almost disrespected her by saying, it's just really funny to me seeing a woman ask me about fly routes. That just seems really funny to me. I'm not used to women talking like that. And it was just supposed to be a giggle, giggle, kiki, ha-ha moment. But ultimately, that was, that was something that was incredibly uh, disheartening. It was disrespectful. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating for this woman because she's just doing her job, a job that she had done for years, no less. Now, I remember having this conversation with uh, a couple of guys uh, having lunch, bringing that up, saying, hey, this is work that needs to be done. And the response I got was, well... He is kind of right. You know, I mean, you know, it's just that's just that's just women. Women don't normally do that. They probably really shouldn't be doing that. And immediately this is the case. Right. You've got a choice. I'm not uh, putting myself up as some kind of hero. This is something that is convicting. We don't speak up when we should. And when that's the case, we need to stop and go, God, I am not a believer. I am not behaving like a believer. There's something in my own heart and in my mind that needs to be changed. To believe is not just to say I believe. To believe is not just to feel I believe. To believe is to demonstrate that I believe. And that is to communicate the very heart of God. These folks who have been walking with Jesus, they were witnessing not just this great religious movement. They were not just witnessing incredible miracles. They also witnessed a very distinct protest against the religious authorities of the time. So to align themselves with this protester, he almost led, very much literally led a riot in the temple. So you've got protesting, rioting for the sake of God's kingdom. And when people see that, they're going, I better not align myself with that because I'm going to be kicked out of the synagogue. Y'all, that is not the kingdom of God. That is not who we are. That is not who we believe in. That is not what we were called to. And according to Jesus, if that is our position, if that is our heart posture, we are not believers. A true believer considers the right cost. A true believer says the cost of losing men and women's praise is worth gaining God's praise. So which cost do I, do I, do I look at? Losing praise for men and women or losing the praise of God? It's interesting he uses that word, God's praise. You realize there are times, we see throughout Scripture, where God speaks well of his children. Consider my servant Job, right? He, he, can, he, he, he speaks well of us. He praises things about us that reminds us of him. And so here's the question. What do I choose more, your praise or God's praise? What do you choose more, our praise or God's praise? This is, the, this is what makes up true belief, authentic Christianity, not a, not a counterfeit. You know who realized this? Peter. Peter realized this. You look throughout, we're going to see later, you see uh, Peter being bold and acting like he's bold. And Jesus, we're not going to let this happen. Jesus, God forbid this happens to you. You're not going to die. Somebody's coming at you. I'm going to cut his ear off. Peter's got this temper and he's showing, he, he thinks that's the way to demonstrate his real belief. But when the time came to confess Jesus, he denied him. And we know that he wept tears later. And when you see who he becomes when the Holy Spirit indwells him in Acts 2, you see a completely different story. Still growth needed, but realizing 
my faith was still not where it needed to be. My belief was imperfect. My belief was incomplete. My belief was not authentic yet. This is where we need to get. This is the question we need to ask ourselves. Which cost are we choosing? Are we choosing to gain the praise of men and at the same time losing the praise of God? This is what easy believism looks like. This is what it means to be. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a belief that hardly ever practices. It's a belief that gets said, but is never demonstrated. I said this earlier. Belief doesn't just occur at the seat of your intellect. It doesn't just occur at the seat of your emotions, but it occurs at the very seat of your will. To believe and not to follow is no belief at all. You cannot say, I cannot say that I believe in Jesus if I don't demonstrate that I follow him. And follow, following him is not following what Jen said last week, not following this carefully curated version of Jesus. I like the Jesus that loves, but not the Jesus that protests. Or I like the Jesus that protests, but not the Jesus that loves. You're not following Jesus then. You're following you. You're following your version. And that's not belief. We need actual, authentic belief. That's the reason why Jesus can say, hey, this kind of belief, when you believe in me, you're actually believing in the very almighty Father God that sent me. That's such a big deal. Jesus is still doing that thing that's making folks mad because he's tying his ministry, he's tying his work, he's tying his life to God the Father. He's tying his life. He's saying, every word you hear out of me is coming from God. Why? Because I and my Father are one. He's still making this deistic claim. He's making this claim to deity that they all understood. That's why they thought he was a blasphemer. And, and they're looking at him going, how dare you say that? You can say you might have a few ideas about God. You, you can say that you heard a few things from God, but for you to say that every word that proceeds out of your mouth comes from God? For you to claim that everything you're doing is just an extension of God, not because you agree with him, but because you are one with him? That's not the God we, cre we created for ourselves. That's not the Messiah that we created for ourselves. That's not the leader that we created for ourselves. So no, we don't believe. And we're going to demonstrate that we don't believe by not practicing. You see, real faith, true faith, true believing and true saving faith practices by way of complete commitment to serving Christ. That's again why Jesus says, if somebody believes in him, you believe in the almighty God. If our faith in Jesus doesn't connect with God the Father, meaning as one sent by the Father to save the world, then our faith is not only incomplete, but is ineffective. It is not true faith yet. You can have an early faith where you believe intellectually and it's still not a saving faith. You know what saving faith looks like? Transformation. It doesn't just look like this internal agreement. It looks like transformation. So you see these folks, they may have, the scripture says uh, they believed, but you realize it's almost like these, these levels of belief. This is almost a surface belief, I believe. They're believing on some level. And again, we're going to talk, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a scale that happens here, right? It's almost a sliding scale of like, we don't know exactly when the belief goes from intellectual to emotional to volitional. We don't, we don't know exactly when it goes there. It's somewhere in this cloud. And so we don't know that. So we don't judge that. But what we can say is, I can judge by the fruit of your belief whether or not you're a believer. That's it. And we're looking at these folks who somehow they, they demonstrate some degree or they share or profess some degree of faith, some degree of belief, but what did they really believe about Jesus? Oftentimes people will say, well, I believe in Jesus. You know what we need to know? We need to figure out what Jesus do you believe in? What do you believe about him? And then the things that you say you believe about him, what then does that require from you? What then does that mean in you? How does that belief in him change you to be sharing in his mission? What does that look like? Are you now able to, maybe not perfectly, but communicate his heart and all of these issues that we see in society? And it's not just, are you intellectually able to do it? Are you emotionally and physically willing to go out no matter what it costs you? 
These folks, they may have said they believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't identify Jesus with God. They may have done what many of uh, uh, several other different faiths around that time would have done. They would have looked at Jesus as uh, among the, the pantheon of great men, the pantheon of great leaders. Many of these Jews would have done the same thing. These Jewish leaders would have said, okay, well, maybe we'll put him in the camp of uh, John the Baptist. Maybe we'll put him in the camp of Abraham. Maybe we'll put him in the camp of Jacob. Uh, we'll, we'll do that, um, but we're not going to actually look at him as the actual God in the flesh. We're not going to look at him as somebody who is completely in line and the very son of God. That's too radical. You realize that so many times when people are advocating for things about God's heart, specifically justice, that's when we call it radical. Well, then, if that's the case, God requires us to be radical. He requires us to be radical, not because he's calling us to do something he hasn't done. He came here being radical. He came here. What does it mean to be radical? It simply means there's a major deviation from the norm. And this deviation is something we're called to because the norm ain't working. The norm is the reason why we're in this mess. We need a massive deviation from the norm. And when that massive deviation is on display, that's how we know that the real transformation has happened. That's how we know when real belief is happening. That's how we know that we've really been changed. So if we don't identify Jesus with being God, we won't really believe there's a necessity for us to be transformed. We need to see him as the sole savior of men. If we don't, then we're lost. We're not a true follower of Jesus at all. We're a fan. We're a fair weather friend. And in many ways, I, I connect that uh, with what it means to be, you know, I think about believing faith and I compare that to saving faith. Saving faith is, is, is tested and it's proving, right? It's, it's this idea that we've been proven, we've been tested, we've dealt with things where we've had to lay some things on the line. We've, you, you live uh, and you die in faith, right? And, and that's a beautiful thing. But what does that really look like? This is gonna seem like, I always say this, me going from the sublime to the ridiculous, but here's the best way I can think of it. When you consider what it means to be a true follower of Jesus, it means that we do not allow the circumstances of this world to create a wall between us and God. It means that regardless of what my eyes show me, regardless of what my ears tell me, regardless of what my history, my background, my dreams, my nightmares, my experiences, my past tells me, there are things that I stand firm in believing and following and practicing, no matter what. It does not matter if everybody around says you're a fool for still holding on to that. You're an idiot or you're making me feel bad for believing that. Or you're making me feel uncomfortable for believing that. Or you're causing division by believing that. These are things that true believers uh, hold to and say, I, I'm sorry, but if the truth of who God is causes division, then God is requiring division. We've said it before. He doesn't want us united in something that's not reflective of his heart. And so if this causes division, I've used this example before. If I have a lung problem and I go to a pulmonologist to be able to evaluate my lungs and, and the pulmonologist says, you've got some severe tar on your lungs. Maybe you're a smoker. And, and, I, and, and I, I remember I did autopsies one summer and I saw the lungs of someone that was a smoker and it made an indelible etching on me. This, 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 these, these lungs that were just tarry and, and very thick and, it, and you could tell that there was major oxygen saturation issues with these lungs. If a pulmonologist says, we looked at your lungs, and the lungs with which you're breathing aren't going to last long because they're not functioning the way they are meant to. You know why? Because of the things that you've been putting into your body. That's the reason why. You know how silly it would be for me to look at that pulmonologist and say, the information you're giving me makes me feel some things. It makes me feel some negative things. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel angry. Therefore, you're being divisive. I prefer for my thoughts to not be interrupted with truth that makes me feel bad. If you gave me some other things that made me hold on to and double down on that the false things I was believing, I'd be okay. Then we could be united. But right now you're giving me information that I don't like, that I don't want. You're being divisive. I'm going away. That's a quick way to die. And that's where we're headed. When we hide things that are not God's heart, we hide behind this argument for unity. When really we might need to be divided so that the things that are broken can truly be seen. Then we deal with what's broken. Then we unite.
This is what believing faith should look like. The way that I think about it, to get to the example, is this. Um, I have been a Detroit Lions fan all of my life. I always make the joke, there's like seven of us left in the world. I follow a team, this isn't even, you don't even have to be a football fan to get this, but I follow a team that has won one playoff game in the Super Bowl era, since the 60s. They've won one playoff game. I have followed this team faithfully. I've always been a fan, I've got jerseys. Every single year, I think through ways that they could finally win a Super Bowl. Every single year, I have this ridiculous hope that somehow they're gonna turn it around. They haven't. In the 40 plus years of my existence, they haven't. But I have this hope all the time. Now, I'm probably foolish, right? This is an example of just foolishness. However, you can never call me a Fairweather fan. It does not matter what the circumstances are, I still keep believing maybe this will be the year, this will be the time. They have this draft pick, this kind of a player, this kind of ability, this is probably gonna be the one. The one thing that really gets me when I think about what it means to follow Jesus, it should be far greater than this. It should be far greater than just going, I like this team, so I'm going to stick with them no matter what. If anything, we get to this place that says, my relationship with Jesus is more than just a Fairweather fan. It's even more than just a loyal fan. Because ultimately, my entertainment hinges on that team being well. But with Jesus, my very eternity hinges on that being true. My very eternity hinges on my faith being authentic. Who I am, what I'm called to do, the kind of person I am as in loving people in my community, loving people in my family, loving people, being changed, being someone that looks like God, all of that hinges on my belief and an unwavering belief There is no place for fair weather fandom if we're calling ourselves followers of Jesus. And finally, we see yet another cost here. This cost that you see when Jesus says in verses 44, the one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me and the one who sees me, uh, sees him who sent me, I've come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Not only is he linking everything he's saying to the Father because they're one, but he's saying... The cost of unbelief is indeed eternal life. And there's lots of thoughts on what eternal life even means. What does that look like? Whatever it looks like, we ain't getting it if our faith is not authentic, period. I know that nowadays it's not popular for us to talk about this idea of eternal judgment and what what does that actually mean? But it's here in the text for a reason. Right? We know that we deal with not getting the praise of God. We know that we deal with being given over to our own unbelief. And now we deal with this, this idea that to not believe authentically is to actually not receive eternal life. There is real judgment. And Jesus says, I didn't come to judge, right? Ultimately, he's saying the truth, the truth of God is the very thing that judges you now either. It's the same thing for me. The truth of that wor- those, uh, the words from that woman who warned my brother and myself in walking down the street, the truth that she spoke had nothing to do with whether or not I believed her. The truth was still the truth no matter what. We've said this before. Truth is not contingent necessarily on whether or not I believe the person. Truth is truth no matter what. I can say that I don't believe in gravity, but if I jump off a building, I'm going to hit the ground, regardless of whether I believe it. This idea of like, well, you know, I can just make my own belief and I can just choose what's true for me and what's true for me is not true for you. Some cases, yes. In areas of spirituality, no. In areas of eternity, no. In areas of what it means to have the heart of God, no. We don't have that option. We don't have that luxury. And if we think we do, we do not have eternal life. This is a hard truth, but it's a necessary truth because there is a cost to our unbelief. 
There is a cost to what it means to not hold to what it is that Jesus tells us and what it is that he shows us. There are things that you see, that you feel, that you deal with, that can create circumstances that can make you maybe not believe. I get that. I have that. We all have areas of unbelief. There's an old English preacher named F.B. Meyer. He put it this way. He said, unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God, but faith, true faith, saving faith, puts God between us and our circumstances. Regardless of what it is we're going through or feeling, there's a truth that is unwavering. Now listen, this last point I want to make that we have to get. Yes, those three areas of unbelief, those are major, right? This idea of being given over to our unbelief, almost enslaved by our unbelief, that's a big deal. What it means to not receive the praise of God, that's a big deal. What it means to not receive eternal life, that's a big deal. And that can actually be debilitating if we just leave it there. Because let's just be real. A lot of us, myself included, we struggle with periods of belief and unbelief. Belief and unbelief. And every time we get to those places of unbelief, if we're leaning on Jesus, then we're led into repentance again. If we're not leaning on Jesus, then we just sit in our own sorrow. We sit in our own dejection. We sit in our own despondence and we sit and go, I don't have any hope anymore. I don't know what it is I can do. I just don't know. I I can't believe. I don't have the right thoughts. My theology's off. I don't know what else I can do. I just can't believe anymore. That's not a belief that's resting on Jesus. You can even trust your disbelief with Jesus. Don't believe me. You don't believe me. Think about the words that we use so often. We quote all the time in Mark chapter 9. And when you think about this man who has this son who's been, who's been overtaken by a demon, he's had this thing from, from childhood, he's dealt with this thing, and he goes to Jesus and he's asking for Jesus to cast this demon out. He's having faith that Jesus can cast the demon out. He says from childhood, and many times it's thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus hears the lack of faith in his voice. If you can. Why would you say if you can? Everything is possible for the one who believes. So Jesus is consistent. Your belief should be strong. Your belief in me, your belief in who God is, should be able to carry the day. But I hear your voice. I hear your question. I hear the doubt in your questioning. I see the doubt in your heart. I see the unbelief very much in who you are right now. And the man hears these words. And immediately, verse 24, immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. We serve a Jesus that enters into our belief and our unbelief. He doesn't just leave us there. He encourages us. We don't have to run away when we identify areas where we're not believing enough. If there are times where I, you, any of us, we have not spoken when we should have spoken, it's never too late because he enters in our disbelief. So we can bring that to him. Jesus, I see your heart here and I didn't act. Whether it's my life individually, areas of sin in my own life where I didn't act, or corporately, areas of sin where I should have spoken out, areas of sin where I should have acted, where I should have been able to do something to speak out on behalf of other image bearers, I didn't do it and that was unbelief. And I'm thankful that I don't just have to live in the shame of my unbelief. I can live in the redemption that you offer because of belief. The the redemption that you offer because of what you've done. The redemption that you offer in spite of the fact that my belief is imperfect. This is what love looks like. So this isn't just this this empty, heartless call to just uh, blindly believe a thing. This is a call to engage in the very heart of Jesus that says, yes, I'm recreating you to believe the right things and I'm forgiving you and I'm comforting you every time you don't. When you come to me with a heart of, of that's broken, a heart of repentance that says, Lord Jesus, this is another day, maybe even another minute, another moment in my life where there's something I'm wrestling with. Either I'm, I see the times when I'm just seeking the praise of men. And so I didn't act or do. Or I see the times where I'm just not believing because, because I, there's a part of me that might desperately be okay with being turned over to that area of unbelief. I'm seeing that now and it breaks my heart. God, will you break my heart more and break my heart for the things that break your heart? Jesus meets us in our belief and our unbelief. You know what that means? That means that imperfect belief 
does not disqualify us when we bring our imperfect belief to Jesus as well. So my encouragement to you, ask these questions. Lord, do I really have authentic belief? Lord, I know that there's a, a huge cost to unbelief. And that cost, y'all, this is more than just a cost that says, I don't get good things in the afterlife. This is beyond that. If my belief is not authentic, I don't get Jesus. I don't get true relationship. I don't get what it means to be fully reconciled. I don't get what it means when Jesus promises to make all things new. If my faith isn't authentic, if my faith isn't real, then I am consigned to live in the old, the brokenness of the old. That's the only thing I have to look forward to. Jesus comes to make us completely whole, to live a life that is more abundant. That's not material. The life that means, what, is it, what does it mean to live a kingdom life again? What does it mean to be remade into the very image of who Jesus is? What does it mean to have the things that are broken with us fully restored? Jesus promises to do that. He promises to do that because he realizes all of your unrighteousness, he's taken on himself. All of your brokenness, he's taken on himself. While he, while he hung on that cross, he hung on that cross holding your imperfect belief, holding your unbelief, holding your rebellion, holding your selfishness, holding your self-worship. He held all of that. He took all of that so that now your faith can be perfected. And so our prayer is, Lord, help our unbelief. We believe, but help our unbelief. Let's pray together. Father, we realize that everything in this life, everything that we do, everything that we engage in, carries a cost. There's nothing that we do that does not carry a cost. God, I pray that you would empower us to choose the right cost. Father, I pray that in choosing the right cost, we would understand what your right cause is. Give us a sense of what your kingdom causes are in our individual lives and what it means to live in society with other image bearers. Give us your heart, God. I pray that you would root out any fear of being kicked out of that symbolic synagogue, whatever that looks like in our lives. I pray that you would cast out all fear of us not getting the praise of people that we respect, like people that have loved us, people that have cared for us, people that have supported us, people that have lifted us up. God, I pray that we would care more about your praise than anyone else's. Not so that we can brag about it, not so that we can tell the word about it, not so that we can post about it, but so that we can know fully that we are submitted to you and you alone, not for our glory, but for your glory, not for our kingdom, but for your kingdom. Father, we want to see evidence of your kingdom here and now. And we realize that you do that primarily through your kingdom citizens. So Lord, through true belief, true conversion, make us your citizens now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's receive this final benediction of God together. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Wherever you are, all of God's family said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.